watch a lot of Grey's Anatomy. And I would say that I watch it begrudgingly because my wife likes it, but I'm not here to lie to you. I have and I would absolutely watch it without her. The show is old, so in fact it came out before I had even met Kate and I was watching it back then. So this is not a wife issue, this is a me issue. And let's just say that Grey's is one of my guilty pleasures when it comes to television. I will admit, however, that it is a terrible show. And I can't stand 95% of the characters or roughly 100% of what the characters do. If you're keeping track at home, I still like Richard and Miranda most of the time, and I guess Meredith, maybe. But the rest of them, they're terrible. Teddy and Owen, work out your mess, okay? Because we're all very tired of it. Anyway, uh, I'm talking about Grey's Anatomy because it's one of the first shows that I remember doing a mid-season finale. It's probably not the first show to ever do this, but it's one of the first that I remember. Somewhere in early December, before all of the Christmas specials start airing, the storyline of Grey's would ramp up to a big moment of tension in the show, which is code for they'd kill a lot of people that you love. And they would usually resolve at least part of the storyline before going to break. But clearly, there would be a lot left for folks to ponder over the next few months as they were not showing new episodes. A bunch of loose ends, a bunch of uncertainty, a bunch of intrigue that would bring people back for the second half of the season. Now, we can think of Genesis 41 as a mid-season finale. You liked that tie, didn't you? You loved it. All right, we can think of Genesis 41 as a mid-season finale because it brings the storyline of Joseph to something of a climax. Readers finally get a little reprieve, a little good news in the story of Joseph. Some of its loose ends are being tied together. But there will also be big questions left unanswered at the end of the chapter, which encourages readers like you and I to keep going, to see how it will all come together. Now, just to review, here's where we've been, or just to follow our analogy, here's where the season of Joseph is at its midway point. The story begins with Joseph being introduced to us as a pretentious, punk, 17-year-old kid who sits at home and dreams about becoming great. In fact, when we first meet Joseph, he's wearing the ridiculous coat that his dad got him as a token of his undying love, and he's telling his brothers about these dreams that he has uh, that seem to indicate that Joseph will one day be so great that his entire family will bow down to him, right? Great guy. His 10 half-brothers hate him. The story points this out numerous times. For example, when their dad gets Joseph the coat, they hate him. When he dreams these ridiculous dreams, they hate him even more. And when they see him parading around uh, the, the family compound, that's a terrible way of phrasing that. When they see him parading around uh, talking about these dreams, they hate him even more than the even more. So what would any brother do in this scenario? Uh, they would sell the one they don't like into slavery and convince their dad that he's dead. We've all been there. While in Egyptian slavery, however, Joseph enjoys some success and he's eventually put in charge of his master's household. 
And then he's accused of rape, which lands him in an Egyptian jail where he again has some success, which again eventually leads to a position of Joseph overseeing the entire prison. And this is the scene where we last left off. Joseph is now 28 years old. He's been in some form of slavery for the last 11 years. Um, And here he meets two new inmates in the prison, both of whom are officials in Pharaoh's court and both of whom have dreams while in prison. Remember, in Egyptian culture, only experts were able to solve dreams. This is something that you were taught to do, something you were trained to do. It was a technical skill of the wise person. It was viewed as a science of sorts. But Joseph, knowing that God is the revealer of all things, asks these two inmates to tell him the dreams and maybe God would let him know what they mean. Joseph is sort of acting as this buffer between God and the people now. So the dream of one official, Pharaoh's cupbearer, was a good omen. Joseph said that he would be released from prison in three days. That's great. And then Joseph begs him, begs the cupbearer to remember him. I shouldn't be here, he says. My brothers, they sold me into slavery. I'm in prison on false accusations. I'm innocent. I didn't do what they say that I did. Tell Pharaoh, please, you're going to have an audience with him in a few days. You're part of his inner circle. You're, You're guarding his health and making sure that he doesn't drink poison. Remember me when you're with Pharaoh. And then the dream of the other official, the baker, it was not good. It was not good at all. It actually meant that in three days he would be decapitated and impaled on a stake and birds would eat his flesh. And all of this comes true. But Joseph is forgotten. For two more years, Joseph is forgotten and left in prison, which leads us to our mid-season finale in Genesis 41. Now, this is a long chapter. We're not going to read the entire story now. I would encourage you to go and do that at some point this week, just to read Genesis 41 in its entirety to see um, how all of this literary artistry comes to bear. Okay, But in this video, I'll just provide you with the highlights of this story. In chapter 41, Pharaoh has dreams weird dreams. I had a leftover burrito late at night sort of dreams. And one of them is about seven cows, beautiful cows, beautiful cows, big ones. And they're standing by the Nile eating reeds. For an Egyptian to be dreaming of the Nile, this is important as well because the Nile has some uh, divine sort of essence. Uh, It was really important for them in their cultural framework. But these big, beautiful cows are sitting there by the Nile eating the reeds. And then there's seven other cows, ugly, emaciated, starved cows. And they aren't eating the reeds. They're just standing behind the big ones, the big, beautiful cows watching them. And you can kind of see where the story is going because the emaciated cows, they don't go after the reeds. They just start eating the big, beautiful cows. And Pharaoh wakes up. He's troubled. And why wouldn't you be? This is a strange dream about cannibal cows. But then he falls back to sleep, dreams another dream. In the second dream, there were seven ears of wheat growing out of a single stalk, and they looked good. You can picture it, right? I'm sure you can. It was the kind of wheat, you know, (laughs) that a farmer would just, gosh, farmer would just be really happy about what this wheat is looking like. 
And there, in the dream, it says, seven ears that were thin and scorched by the east wind were springing up after them, after the good ears. And the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. I have no idea what this image is supposed to evoke, but just, just stick with it here, okay? Pharaoh wakes up again, and he calls in all of the experts, all of the diviners, all of the interpreters, all of the, the dream scientists, the people who are trained to discern what stuff like this means to see if they could solve the dreams. This is an important task for the, for the ruler of a kingdom. You, you really want these people around you because the dreams of a pharaoh, they mean more than, say, the dreams of Joseph. In Joseph's dreams, his family is bowing down to him. It's very individualistic. It's about what happens to Joseph. But as the Jewish rabbis acknowledge, when a king dreams, it serves the whole world, which is a problem because Pharaoh's experts have no idea what's going on here. The text says quite plainly, no one. None of the magicians, none of the diviners, none of the scientists, they, they could not interpret the dreams for Pharaoh, which is a beautiful segue for the random Hebrew prisoner, the dream master, as his brothers called him, whose God has already helped him to interpret dreams while in prison. And the cupbearer, who is in close contact with Pharaoh, he sees all of this unfold. The dreams, Pharaoh's anxiety, the failure of the experts, the lack of a solution, Pharaoh's consternation. And then finally, two years after Joseph had solved his dream in prison, two years after Joseph pleaded with him to remember him before Pharaoh, two years after Joseph declares his innocence to the cupbearer, the cupbearer finally remembers. The text says, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Remember the time, Pharaoh, you, you were really ticked at me and the baker, and, and you threw us into prison. Man, those were good times. But while we were there, we had these dreams, and we didn't really know what to do with them. We figured nobody in prison could solve these dreams, so we just kind of were downcast, and we're kind of, you know, shuffling around the prison there. But there was a young Hebrew who uh, was there with us. He was a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us. He he solved them for us, and things turned out exactly as he said. I, I was restored to my role here, which is great, and the, the, the baker, you, you, you remember, uh, you, rem you remember how that, how that all worked out. Thank you, your lordship. Um, so Pharaoh, it says, sends for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. This is an unfortunate translation in the NIV because the same word here for dungeon is actually used for the vessel that Joseph is put in by his brothers before he is sold into Egyptian slavery, dungeon and cistern. It's the same word. And there's some literary artistry going on here because Joseph was put into a dungeon or a cistern 13 years ago, and only now is he being removed from the dungeon or the cistern. It says that when he had shaved his, his head and changed his clothes, which is according to Egyptian custom and based probably on just his need for a shower and fresh clothes, he comes before Pharaoh. Now, I want you to just take a moment and note the oddity of this scene. Joseph, he's a foreigner. 
He's a slave. He's he's a prisoner. He's not trained in the art of dream interpretation. He's not a sanctioned and approved wise person of the empire, but Joseph knows the God who is the real dream master. In fact, he diverts any attention from his skill and places it all at the feet of God. Any success that Joseph has is God's. So Pharaoh tells Joseph his two crazy dreams about the beautiful cows and the emaciated cows and the big stalks of wheat and the small ones eating the big ones, whatever. And Joseph interprets them. And just like before, there's no prayer, there's no divining, there's no casting of lots or reading the smoke of the burned entrails. Like none of this is happening. Joseph simply hears the dreams and then launches into their meaning. He says, the two dreams are one dream. And God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land. And then seven years of famine will follow. The abundance of of Egypt, the seven years, the good years, we're going to forget those because the famine will just ravage the land. And the reason that Pharaoh has had two dreams is because this matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. The matter is decided. Famine is happening. But Joseph seems to insinuate that the potentially disastrous effects of the famine are not decided. There's still time to prepare and adapt, which is why Joseph leans in at this point. And he comes at him with some unsolicited advice saying, you know what you need to do here, Pharaoh? Listen, you need a guy like me, super smart guy, extra good looking, someone who knows the God who can interpret dreams. You you don't need those magicians. Look at them. They're terrible. They didn't help you at all. You had to bring me, a Hebrew, out of prison to listen to your dreams and interpret them. If you want to get out in front of this thing, Pharaoh, put me in charge. I'll store some of the food during the good years, 20% of the food, actually, and then we'll be ready when the famine hits. I I bet we'll even have enough left over to sell to foreigners. We might be able to make a profit on this thing. Okay, now I I got a little excited there. Joseph didn't lay it on quite that thick, but he did say in no uncertain terms that Pharaoh would need to put someone in charge, and he hints in no uncertain terms that he's the guy, and his hint is taken. Pharaoh considering the options, maybe looking over at the disgraced magicians in the corner who are just in the fetal position and really embarrassed as as to what has just happened. He looks at them and says, they're not the ones. So he picks Joseph. And for the third time in Joseph's story, he's put in charge. This time, he's put in charge of the entire country. So Joseph, in the story, has moved from the favored son of a nomadic shepherd to the object of his brother's disdain, to an Egyptian slave, to an accused sexual offender, to a prisoner, to now second in command over the entire Egyptian empire. Now, I want you to understand something about the story here, because this detail that we're about to hear is is pretty important, and another clue to the literary artistry of this story. It's beautiful in how the author is weaving things together and tying up some of these loose ends. But in the beginning of the story, Joseph is given a coat of many colors, or an ornamented coat, or a long-sleeved coat, a coat that goes down to his ankles, a coat that in its only other usage in the Bible, virgin princesses are wearing. 
do with that what you will. We don't really know exactly what the coat was or what it looked like, but it was a sign of his father's love for him and one of the reasons why his brothers hated him. So when they sell him into slavery, they take his coat, they dip it in blood, and they send it home to their dad. His coat becomes the proof of his death. Then when Joseph was in slavery, his master's wife wanted to sleep with him. Uh, And according to this story, she couldn't handle how insanely hot Joseph was. To revert back to our Grey's Anatomy theme, Joseph is McSteamy or McDreamy or Jackson, if you prefer. Uh, Take your pick. Uh, She propositioned him every day and Joseph rejected her every day. However, one day they were in the house alone and she grabbed his garment, taking it off of him. Joseph, still very pure and chaste, ran out of the house half naked or completely naked. It's hard to tell. But he leaves his garment behind, which allowed his master's wife to create a story where Joseph tried to rape her. His garment, in other words, now in the hands of his accuser, became the proof of his attack. And now the text says that Pharaoh takes his signet ring from his finger and he puts it on Joseph's finger and he dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Uh, This chain is really probably more symbolic of a golden collar, but his ring and his collar and his new garments, they become the proof of his new status. These details are not Random. There's a lot of stuff going on with clothes in the story of Joseph. Further, it says that Pharaoh had Joseph ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him. Another unfortunate translation from the NIV. It says, make way. But a better way to translate this would probably be kneel down or bend the knee. And in this, Joseph's dreams are actually coming true. People are bowing down to him wherever he goes. And then Pharaoh says to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or a foot in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh gives Joseph a new name, an Egyptian name, a a, a name that is uh, Tsephanat Panea. And he gives him Asenat, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph goes throughout the land of Egypt. In one sense, some of the threads of the story are starting to come together. Joseph's slavery is over. His dreams are coming true. He's ascended to a seat of power. He has received royal robes, and now people are bowing down to him. But in another sense, his family's gone. They've been absent for 13 years. He's alone in a land that is not his own. He doesn't know anything about the fate of his dad or his brothers, particularly his youngest full brother, Benjamin. He knows nothing about what has happened to him. Everything has changed for Joseph. His entire world has changed. He he may be thinking now that his dreams are not just about his family anymore because the story has gone in a direction that Joseph did not anticipate. At the end of this mid-season finale, Joseph is dressed in Egyptian clothes, wearing an Egyptian signet ring, riding in an Egyptian chariot, leading an Egyptian empire, speaking in the Egyptian language, living with an Egyptian wife. He has almost totally assimilated to the culture. He's still committed to his God, but everything else, it's, it's gone. It's new. 
foreign. And I assume this is not where Joseph thought he would be. But Joseph is moving on. In fact, in the next passage, we learn that Joseph and Asenath, they have two kids, and and their names become very symbolic. But it's the name of the firstborn, Manasseh, that is pretty intense and I think worth our consideration. The text says that Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh, quote, because God has made me forget all my trouble. And God has made me forget my, my father's entire household. Perhaps if this was a mid-season finale, we'd get a quick cut away from Joseph riding in his Egyptian chariot with all of the Egyptians bowing down before him. And we would get this cut back to his home in Israel with his father sitting at a table or out in the field or maybe a quick shot of his brothers shepherding the flocks. And perhaps we would get a glimpse of what is to come, where this story is going, that there's some real important loose ends that need to be tied, but but we don't get that shot here. Joseph forgets his trouble, and he forgets his father's household. He forgets his brothers. He forgets his family. Joseph moves on. And here's a tie that I want us to consider. When we find ourselves in unfamiliar territory, we we don't get that shot in our stories, the quick cut to where things are going, the shot that tells us where, where everything is, is heading, that shot that, that lets us know that there are still some loose ends yet to be tied up, and, and they will. Can you resonate with this? Maybe not the forgetting your family bit, but maybe for some of you, yeah, exactly that. Have you ever felt like your life is so far from what you thought it would be, so far from what you envisioned it would be, that the only thing left to do now is to thank God that you are moving in a different and new direction? Have you ever had to move on to a new dream, so to speak, where you can identify with what Joseph is doing here, where he's naming his kid after God allowing him to forget all of the past even where he came from, and to look forward to the new future that God would bring to him. Have you ever had to forget the past, the the trauma that you've endured? Have you felt that this year, over the last 11 months? This story of Joseph is, is important, and Without knowing where it's going, perhaps we can identify with a character who's having to make a new way for himself, having to shift his understanding of what God is doing and instead celebrating what is happening and how God is moving in this direction as well. Joseph has another kid with Asenat as well. And while the first one is named after what God is allowing him to forget, namely the afflictions and the people that have brought that upon him. His second child is named Ephraim. And this sort of symbolizes that that God is blessing him, making him fruitful in the midst of his own afflictions. So Joseph is forgetting the past, but also not forgetting the past and celebrating what God is doing in and through his present. And as Christians, I'm curious, and I think it's worth our consideration if Where we are now, if we, like Joseph, need to pivot, 
if we like Joseph need to trust, if we like Joseph need to follow after Jesus and forgetting what's behind, looking forward to where he is leading us. This story is is worth our consideration, and I'm hopeful that as we find ourselves in the midst of an ongoing pandemic and in the midst of maybe even just the fatigue that we feel with making decisions and trying to figure out what's next, that maybe we can begin to put one foot in front of the other and trust that Jesus is leading us to newness and life and hope.